Many a year ago, before chloroform was thought of, there lived in an old rambling house in Gerard Street, Soho, a young Irishman called Hartford O'Donnell. After Hartford O'Donnell, he was entitled to write M.R.C.S., for he had studied hard to gain this distinction, and the older surgeons at Guy's, his hospital, considered him, in their secret hearts, one of the most rising operators of the day. Having said chloroform was unknown at the time this story opens, it will strike my readers that if Hartford O'Donnell were a rising and successful operator in those days, Of necessity, he combined within himself a larger number of striking qualities than are by any means necessary to form a successful operator in these. There was more than mere hand skill, more than even thorough knowledge of his profession, needful for the man who, dealing with conscious subjects, essayed to rid them of some of the diseases to which flesh is heir. There was greater courage required in the manipulator of old than is altogether essential now. Then, as now, a thorough mastery of his instruments, a steady hand, a keen eye, a quick dexterity were indispensable. But, added to all these things, there formerly required a pulse which knew no quickening a mental strength which never faltered, a ready power of adaptation in unexpected circumstances, fertility of resource in difficult cases, and a brave front under all emergencies. In spite of his unquestionable skill as an operator, the Dons, who acknowledged his talent, shook their heads gravely, when two or three of them, in private and solemn conclave, talked confidently of their younger brother. If there were many things in his favour, there were more in his disfavour. He was Irish, not merely by the accident of birth, which might have been forgiven, since a man cannot be held accountable for such caprices of nature but by every other accident and design which is objectionable to the orthodox and respectable and representative English mind. In speech, appearance, manner, habits, modes of expression, Hartford O'Donnell was Irish. To the core of his heart he loved the island which he, nevertheless, declared he never meant to revisit and amongst the English he moved to all intents and purposes a foreigner, who was resolved to go to destruction as fast as he could, and let no man hinder him. He means to go the whole length of his tether, observed one of the ancient wiseacres to another, which speech implied a conviction that Hartford O'Donnell, having sold himself to the evil one, was a reckless, graceless, clever, wicked devil, going to his natural home as fast as in London a man can possibly process thither. Life, what good was it? Death, 
Was he a child, or a woman, or a coward, to be afraid of that hereafter? God knew all about the trifle which had upset his path better than the dons at guise, and he did not dread facing his maker. And yet, living all alone in the old house near Soho Square, grave thoughts would intrude frequently into the surgeon's mind. Thoughts which were, so to say, italicised by peremptory visits from people who wanted money. Although he had many acquaintances, he had no single friend, and accordingly, these thoughts were received and brooded over in solitude, in those hours when, after returning from dinner or supper, or congenial carouse, he sat in his dreary room, smoking his pipe, and considering means and ways, chances and certainties. It was thus Hartford O'Donnell sat thinking on the Christmas Eve when I crave permission to introduce him to my readers. A good-looking man, ladies considered him. A tall, dark-complexioned, black-haired, straight-limbed, deeply, divinely blue-eyed fellow, with a soft voice, with a pleasant brogue, who had ridden like a centaur over the loose stone walls in Connemara, who had danced all night at the Dublin Balls, who had led a mad, wild life in Trinity College. And a wilder, perhaps, while studying for a doctor, as the Irish phrase goes in Dublin. And who, after the death of his eldest brother, left him free to return to Calgillan and pursue the usual utterly useless, utterly purposeless, utterly pleasant life of an Irish gentleman, possessed of health, birth and expectations, suddenly kicked over the paternal traces, bade adieu to Calgillan Castle and the blandishments of a certain beautiful Miss Clifton, beloved of his mother and laid out to be his wife, walked down the avenue without even so much company as a gossoon to carry his carpet bag, shook the dust from his feet at the lodge gates, and took his seat on the coach, never once looking back at Calgillan. Twelve years and a half had passed since then, without any one of the Calgillan people having set eyes on Master Hartford's handsome face. In that time, one thing only he felt to be needful. Money. Money. To keep him when the evil days of sickness, or age, or loss of practice came upon him. He looked around him, and he perceived that the majority of great men, 
great and wealthy, had been indebted for their elevation more to the accidents of birth, patronage, connection or marriage than to personal ability. In Dublin he could, by means of his name and connection, have done well. But then he was not in Dublin. Neither did he want to be. The bitterest memories of his life were inseparable from the name of the Green Island, and he had no desire to return to it. Besides, in Dublin, heiresses were not quite so plentiful as in London, and an heiress Hartford O'Donnell had decided would do more for him than years of steady work. A rich wife could clear him of debt, introduce him to fashionable practice, afford him that measure of social respectability which a medical bachelor invariably lacks, and deliver him from the loneliness of Gerard Street. To most men, deliberately bartering away their independence for money seems so prosaic a business that they strive to gloss it over even to themselves and to assign every reason for their choice, save that which is really the influencing one. Not so, however, with Hartford O'Donnell. He sat beside the fire, scoffing over his proposed bargain, when with a start and a shiver and a blanched face he turned sharply round, whilst a low, sobbing, wailing cry echoed mournfully through the room. No form of words could give an idea of the sound. The plaintiveness of the Aeolian harp, that plaintiveness which so soon affects and lowers the highest spirits, would have seemed wildly gay in comparison to the sadness of the cry which seemed floating in air. As the summer wind comes and goes amongst the trees, so that mournful wail came and went, came and went. It came in a rush of sound, like a gradual crescendo managed by a skilful musician, and it died away like a lingering note, so that the listener could scarcely tell the exact moment when it faded away into silence. I say faded away, for it disappeared as the coastline disappears in the twilight, and there was utter stillness in the apartment. Then, for the first time, Hartford O'Donnell looked at his dog, beholding the creature crouched into a corner beside the fireplace. So you heard it, Brian, he said to the dog. It's a mighty queer thing to think of, being favoured with a visit from a banshee in Gerard Street. And as the lady has travelled so far, I only wish I knew whether there is any sort of refreshment she would like to take after her long journey. He spoke loudly, and with a certain mocking defiance, seeming to think the phantom he addressed would reply. But when he stopped at the end of his sentence, no sound came through the stillness. There was utter silence in the room, silence broken only by the falling of the cinders on the hearth and the breathing of his dog. If my visitor would tell me, he proceeded, for whom this lamentation is being made, whether for myself or for some member of my illustrious family, I should feel immensely obliged. 
It seems too much honour for a poor surgeon to have such attention paid him. Good heavens, what is that? He exclaimed, as a ring, loud and peremptory, echoed in the house. Across the hall, Hartford O'Donnell strode, relieved at the prospect of speaking to any living being. He took no precaution of putting up the chain. A dozen burglars would have proved welcome in comparison to that ghostly intruder. He threw the door open, admitting a rush of wet, cold air. Who's there? What do you want? Who is there? Why the devil can't you speak? But when even this polite exhortation failed to elicit an answer, he passed out into the night and looked up the street and down the street to see nothing but the driving rain and the blinking lights. If this goes on much longer, I shall soon think I must be either mad or drunk, he muttered as he re-entered the house and locked and bolted the door once more. Madam will surely be too much of a gentlewoman to intrude here thought the surgeon, scoffing even at his own fears. But when he lay down, he did not put out his light, and he made Brian leap up and crouch on the coverlet beside him. The man was fairly frightened, and would have thought it no discredit to his manhood to acknowledge as much. He was not afraid of death. He was not afraid of troubles. He was not afraid of danger, but he was afraid of the banshee. And as he lay with his hand on the dog's head, he thought over all the stories he had ever heard about this family retainer in the days of his youth. He had not thought about her for years and years. Hartford O'Donnell thought about his own father riding full chase across country and hearing as he galloped by a clump of plantation, something like a sobbing and wailing. The hounds were in full cry, but he still felt, as he afterwards expressed it, that there was something among those trees he could not pass. And so he jumped off his horse and hung the reins over the branch of a fir and beat the cover well, but not a thing could he find in it. Then, For the first time in his life, Miles O'Donnell turned his horse's head from the hunt and within a mile of Calgillan, met a man running to tell him Mr. Martin's gun had burst and hurt him badly. And he remembered the story also of how Mary O'Donnell, his great aunt, being married to a young Englishman, heard the banshee as she sat one evening waiting for his return and of how she, thinking the bridge by which he often came home unsafe for horse and man, went out in a great panic to meet and entreat him to go round by the main road for her sake. Sir Everard was riding along in the moonlight, making straight for the bridge, when he beheld a figure dressed all in white upon it. Then there was a crash, and the figure disappeared. The lady was rescued and brought back to the hall, but next morning there were two dead bodies within its walls. Those of Lady Ayrton and her stillborn son. 
quicker than I write them, these memories chased one another through Hartford O'Donnell's brain. And there was one more terrible memory than any which would recur to him. Concerning an Irish nobleman, who seated alone in his great townhouse in London, heard the banshee and rushed out to get rid of the phantom, which wailed in his ear, nevertheless, as he strode down Piccadilly. And then the surgeon remembered how he went with a friend to the opera, feeling sure that there no banshee, unless she had a box, could find admittance. Until suddenly he heard her singing, up amongst the highest part of the scenery, with a terrible mournfulness, with a pathos, which made the prima donna's tenderest notes seem harsh by comparison. As he came out, some quarrel arose between him and a famous fire-eater against whom he stumbled. And the result was that the next afternoon there was a new lord, vice-lord, killed in a duel with Captain Bravo. Memories like these are not the most enlivening possible. They are apt to make a man fanciful and nervous and wakeful. But as time ran on, Hartford O'Donnell fell asleep with his candle still burning and Brian's cold nose pressed against his hand. Go to the hospital. Go at once. The surgeon started up in bed, rubbed his eyes and looked about him. The candle was flickering faintly in its socket. Brian, with his ears pricked forward, had raised his head at his master's sudden jump. Everything was quiet. But still, those words were ringing in his ear. Go to the hospital. Go at once. The tremendous peal of the bell overnight and this sentence seemed to be simultaneous. That he was wanted at Guy's wanted imperatively, came to O'Donnell like an inspiration. Neither sense nor reason had anything to do with the conviction that roused him out of bed and made him dress as speedily as possible and grope his way down the staircase, Brian following. He opened the front door and passed out into the darkness. The rain was over and the stars were shining as he pursued his way down Newport Market and thence winding in and out in a southeast direction through Lincoln's Inn Fields and Old Square to Chancery Lane whence he proceeded to St Paul's. Along the deserted streets he resolutely continued his walk, on through Cannon Street, on over London Bridge, where the lights flickered in the river, on thinking of the terrible cry he had heard overnight, that terrible wail which he could not drive away from his memory even as he entered Guy's and confronted the porter who said, You've just been sent for, sir. Did you meet the messenger? Like one in a dream, Hartford O'Donnell heard him. Like one in a dream, also, he asked what was the matter. Bad accident, sir. Fire. Fell off a balcony. Unsafe old building. Mother and child. A son. Child with compound fracture of thigh. This the joint information of porter and house surgeon mingled together and made a roar in Mr. O'Donnell's ears like the sound of the sea breaking on a shingly shore. Only one sentence he understood perfectly. 
immediate amputation necessary. At this point he grew cool. He was the careful, cautious, successful surgeon in a moment. The child, you say, he answered. Let me see him. The guy's hospital of today may be different to the guys Hartford O'Donnell knew so well. Railways have, I believe, swept away the old operating room. Railways may have changed the position of the old accident ward, to reach which, in the days of which I am writing, the two surgeons had to pass a staircase leading to the upper stories. On the lower step of the staircase, partially in shadow, Hartford O'Donnell beheld, as he came forward, an old woman seated. An old woman with streaming grey hair, with attenuated arms, with head bowed forward, with scanty clothing, with bare feet, who never looked up at their approach, but sat unnoticing, shaking her head and wringing her hands in an extremity of grief. Who is that? asked Mr. O'Donnell, almost involuntarily. Who is what? demanded his companion. That, that woman, was the reply. What woman? There. Are you blind? Seated on the bottom step of the staircase. What's she doing? persisted Mr. O'Donnell. There is no woman near us, his companion answered, looking at the rising surgeon very much as though he suspected him of seeing double. <laughs> no woman, scoffed Hartford. Do you expect me to disbelieve the evidence of my own eyes? And he walked up to the figure, meaning to touch it. But as he essayed to do so, the woman seemed to rise in the air and float away with her arms stretched high up over her head, uttering such a wail of pain and agony and distress as caused the Irishman's blood to curdle. My God, did you hear that? He said to his companion. What? was the reply. Then, although he knew the sound had fallen on deaf ears, he answered, The wail of the banshee. Some of my people are doomed. I trust not, answered the house surgeon, who had an idea, nevertheless, that Hartford O'Donnell's banshee lived in a whiskey bottle and that she would someday make an end of that rising and clever operator. With nerves utterly shaken, Mr. O'Donnell walked forward to the student ward. There, with his face shaded from the light, lay his patient, a young boy with a compound fracture of the thigh. While he was laying out his instruments, he heard the boy lying on the table murmur faintly, Tell her not to cry so. Tell her not to cry. What is he talking about? Hartford O'Donnell inquired. The nurse says he's been speaking about some woman crying ever since he came in. His mother, most likely answered the attendant. He is delirious, then, observed the surgeon. No, sir, pleaded the boy excitedly. 
It is that woman. That woman with the grey hair. I saw her looking from the upper window before the balcony gave way. She's never left me since, and she won't be quiet, wringing her hands and crying. Can you see her now? Hartford O'Donnell inquired. Point out where she stands. Then the lad stretched forth a feeble finger in the direction of the door, where the surgeon saw a woman standing. A woman with grey hair and scanty clothing and upstretched arms and bare feet. Hartford O'Donnell fell fainting on the floor. How long he lay in that death-like swoon, I cannot say. But when he returned to consciousness, the principal physician of Guy's was standing beside him in the cold grey light of the Christmas morning. The boy, murmured O'Donnell faintly. Now, my dear fellow, keep yourself quiet, was the reply. Now, the, the boy he repeated irritably. Who operated? No one. Mortification had set in. It would have been useless cruelty. Do not distress yourself, went on the physician kindly. He could not have survived the operation in any case. He was quite delirious from the first, raving about a woman with grey hair and... Yes, yes, I know. Hartford O'Donnell interrupted. And the boy had a mother. Yes, bruised and shaken, but not seriously injured. Has she blue eyes and fair hair? Fair hair all rippling and wavy. Is she white as a lily, with just a faint flush of colour in her cheek? Is she young and trusting? And innocent. No, I am wandering. She must be nearly thirty now. Go, for God's sake, and tell me if you can find a woman that you could imagine having been as a girl such as I describe. Irish? Asked the doctor. And O'Donnell made a gesture of assent. It is she, then, was the reply. A woman with the face of an angel. A woman who should have been my wife, the surgeon answered. Whose child was my son? Lord help you, ejaculated the doctor. Then Hartford O'Donnell raised himself from the sofa where they had laid him and told his companion the story of his life, how there had been bitter feud between his people and her people, how they were divided by old animosities and by difference of religion. How they had met by stealth and exchanged rings and vows, all for naught. How his family had insulted hers, so that her father, 
wishful for her to marry a kinsman of his own, bore her off to a faraway land, and made her write him a letter of eternal farewell. How his own parents had kept all knowledge of the quarrel from him, till she was utterly beyond his reach. How they had vowed to discard him, unless he agreed to marry according to their wishes. How he left his home, and came to London, and pushed his fortune. When he had finished, the bells were ringing for morning service, ringing loudly, ringing joyfully. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. But there was little peace that morning for Hartford O'Donnell. His son was dead. Stealthily he followed his friend and beheld with her eyes closed, her cheeks pale and pinched, her hair thinner, but still falling like a veil over her. The love of his youth. The only woman he had ever loved, devotedly and unselfishly. She had been true to him, through shame and grief and poverty. She had been loyal to the lover of her youth. And before the new year dawned, there came a letter from Calgillan, saying that the banshee had been heard there, and praying Hartford, if he were still alive, to let bygones be bygones, in consideration of the long years of estrangement, the anguish and remorse of his afflicted parents. been listening to Hartford O'Donnell's Warning by Charlotte Riddell, performed by Kathy Rose O'Brien. This is the 2022 Molly Christmas Ghost Story. For more ghost stories from the Museum of Literature Ireland, take a look at our Dublin Gothic online exhibition at exhibitions.molly.ie. This recording was produced by Dr. Katie Mishler, Ian Dunphy and Benedict Schlepper Connolly for Radio Molly, with Ian Dunphy on sound. Script editing was by Dr. Katie Mishler, with music by Benedict Schlepper Connolly, and sound design by Ian Dunphy and Benedict Schlepper Connolly. This recording has been kindly supported by the European Research Council Victor Project, with thanks to Professor Geraldine Meany of the UCD School of English Drama and Film and the Insight Centre for Data Analytics. Research for this recording is provided by Dr. Katie Mishler, National Endowment for the Humanities Fellow at the Keonachtan Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame, and Dr. Maria Mulvaney, Lecturer at the UCD Centre for Cultural Analytics. 
Visit ghostlyirishfictions.com for more about Dr. Maria Mulvaney's work on the Irish ghost story. For more from Radio Molly, visit radio.molly.ie.